0: This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com to claim your offer. This week I'm going to recommend A Brief History of the Samurai by Jonathan Clements. It's exactly what it sounds like, though at 12 hours long I don't know how brief I would call it, and presents a well thought out view of the rise and fall of the warrior class that dominated Japan for 900 odd years. I'm working my way through it now and I like everything I've heard. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your copy. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 97, The North Remembers. This week, we're going to go back and address one of the gaps I've left in Japanese history. We're going to discuss the history of a people who, for a long time, ruled themselves, and operated independently from the Japanese state we've spent so much time discussing. It's time to talk about the Ainu. First, I want to clarify two things, who the Ainu are and what their relationship is with a different group of people, the Amishi. So first, the Ainu are an entirely separate ethnic group from what we think of as Japanese. Best we can figure, they arose from a cultural mixing of prehistoric migrants to Japan with prehistoric inhabitants of what is now Russian Siberia and Kamchatka. Their language, the Ainu language, is what's called a language isolate. Like, say, the Basque language in Europe, it has no discernible relationship to the languages spoken around it. This makes it very hard to say with any certainty where the Ainu came from. That's not to say we have no idea of Ainu history prior to the arrival of the modern Japanese population. We're actually pretty sure the Ainu are the last survivors of the old Jomon people, the first culture in Japanese history. Ainu is a term referring specifically to the native inhabitants of Hokkaido, the Kur Isles, and Sakhalin Island, but the Ainu are not the only recorded to aboriginal population in Japanese history. If you'll think way back to our episodes on Heian, Japan, we talked about the origin of the title Shogun in the 800s AD. Instituted as a sort of supreme military commander position, the full title is sei Yi Tai Taishogun, the Supreme General for the Subduing of Barbarians. Who are the barbarians? A group related to the Ainu, called the Amishi. Simply put, if the Ainu are inhabitants of Hokkaido and points further north, the Amishi were the residents of northern Honshu, in between the Ainu and the regular Japanese. To make sense of all this, let's go back to 200 BCE, to the dawn of the Yayoi period, the second period in Japanese history. Remember that during this period, refugees from the constant wars in Korea and China began to arrive in Japan, bringing with them vastly superior technology, Iron Age as opposed to Stone Age technology. This is, for example, when Fu supposedly landed with his complement of Qin Dynasty archers. These migrants landed in the south, near Kyushu, and began spreading north across Japan from there. This created a sort of tripolar arrangement, in the south, the area dominated by these immigrant peoples became the nucleus of what we think of as the Japanese state. A bit farther north, a mixture of these new settlers and old Jolmon residents became the Amishi, ethnically distinct, but united by a shared adoption of the Ainu language. Further north, the Ainu remained totally distinct, isolated from the newcomers by the Amishi buffer state, so to speak. All of this is suggested by three things. Archaeological evidence, Ainu oral histories, which state that they lived in Japan for thousands of years before the, quote, People of the Sun came, and early Japanese written histories, which describe the first emperor Jinmu fighting, among others, the Amishi, to establish his kingdom. Some scholars think this is actually a metaphor for the invasion of Iron Age people from the Asian mainland. However, as the whole subduing barbarians thing might give away, these three groups eventually became two. After the unification of the southern part of the country under the imperial family sometime in the early centuries CE, the court began organizing campaigns to push further and further north. Now, the Amishi and Ainu both adopted new Iron Age technology, but the Amishi were still constantly pushed back. There are a few reasons why they continued to falter in the face of the Japanese advance. First and foremost, the Japanese had horses and the Amishi did not. This made Japanese armies far more mobile, especially once large numbers of mounted samurai started to take the field. Second, the Amishi were politically fractured into various confederations and alliances, and not all of these groups were convinced of the utility of further resistance. Specifically, during the longest war between the Heian Court and the Amishi, the descriptively named 38 Years' War from 773 to 811 CE, more than once, Amishi resistance was hindered by defections of Amishi tribes to the Japanese side. These defections were prompted by the usual factors, being convinced of the hopelessness of resistance, as well as the likelihood of reward if the struggle was abandoned and accommodation reached. By 811 CE, the Heian court controlled around two-thirds of the island of Honshu. Only the reaches north of the Kitakami River which runs through modern Miyagi and Iwate prefectures, remained independent Emishi territory. This last area would fall under Japanese control during the time of the Gempei War. If you'll remember, the Heian court was for 400 years dominated by an aristocratic family called the Fujiwara. One branch of the Fujiwara actually set itself up in the north, in the Amishi territories. They formed an alliance with the remaining Amishi leaders and set up a mixed Japanese amishi regime called the Northern Fujiwara. What did the amishi get out of this arrangement? Well, a boatload of cash and access to Fujiwara influence, which enabled them to attract huge numbers of artisans and merchants up to the north. At its peak, the Northern Fujiwara capital at Hiraizumi rivaled Kyoto in size, if not splendor. Unfortunately, that kind of wealth has a bad habit of attracting unwanted attention, and that's exactly what happened to the Northern Fujiwara. Once the Genpei War had ended, the newly victorious Minamoto clan of samurai decided to head north and bring this renegade regime under control. The Amishi and the Northern Fujiwara stood no chance against the battle-hardened veterans of the Genpei War, led by their most brilliant commander, Minamoto no Yoshitsune. The buffer between Japan and the Ainu was now gone. Incidentally, if you're a Studio Ghibli fan, and what kind of joyless person are you if you aren't, the story of Princess Mononoke is a fictionalized account of a final pocket of independent amishi resistance surviving into the Sengoku period. It's interesting, though totally fictional, and you absolutely should see the movie if you have not. The Ainu were now in direct contact with mainland Japan, but for most of the next couple centuries, that contact was very limited in scope. So before we go any further, let's talk about how the Ainu lived. The Ainu were halfway between farmers and hunter-gatherers. They did cultivate some areas, but mostly supported themselves through hunting. This meant that their population was far less dense than the Japanese. Agriculture can support much larger populations per square mile of land than hunting can, but also that each individual Ainu was a potential fighter. After all, hunting and fighting have a lot of skills in common, farming and fighting not so much. Politically, the Ainu were divided into localized bands that controlled small areas. There was no central government. However, these bands could come together in the face of a large enough threat, and as we're going to see, that happens a couple of times. The Ainu religion somewhat resembles Shinto in terms of showing reverence for spirits believed to be present in all things. The Ainu language term is kamui, and if you hear some similarity between that and the Japanese term kami, meaning spirit, well, you're not alone. This is what led some Japanese religious scholars in the 19th century to try to reconstruct early, that is, pre-China contact Shinto, from Ainu religious customs, like we talked about a few episodes back. One of the more interesting Ainu traditions involves the use of tattoos. Women would receive increasingly elaborate tattoos over the course of their lives, with the most distinctive tattoo, being around the lips, received at the time of marriage. I'll post some pictures on the website so you can see what I mean, it's quite striking. Nowadays, that particular custom has fallen out of favor, but I've heard of Ainu women recreating the tattoo designs with things like lipstick for weddings and such. Anyway, back to the narrative. Hokkaido, at the time called Ezo, was not considered to be worth the trouble of conquering. As far as anybody knew, there wasn't anything terribly valuable up there, nor was the land of any particular strategic value. So the Japanese traded with the Ainu on occasion, but did little other than that. I should pause here to say that for most of their history the Ainu did not have a writing system making it hard to get their version of what happened during this period. They do, however, crop up in mainland accounts, not just Japanese ones. The Mongol Yuan dynasty of China recorded that during the 1200s, one northern tribe which had submitted to the Mongols, called the Nivka, were being raided by the Ainu. The Mongols promptly sent an emissary to the Ainu to tell them to quit it and to submit to them, and the Ainu, wisely, said yes, and started paying tribute to the Mongol Khans. As a result, they were allowed to trade legally with the Yuan dynasty. This served to make the Ainu an important trade hub for the Japanese, since the Ainu could buy mainland products and then resell them to the Japanese, and the Japanese could get them without having to submit to the Chinese tributary system. This is the same role Okinawa would play for Japan a few centuries down the line. However, things eventually took a turn for the worse, touched off by the beginning of ethnic Japanese settlement in Hokkaido. Specifically, a Japanese outpost was established at a peninsula in southern Hokkaido. Today, that settlement, chosen for its defensible location, is the modern city of Hakodate. From there, other settlements along the southern coast of Hokkaido began to crop up. The main goal of these early settlers was trade with the Ainu, but that trade was not always entirely fair. In more than one case, Japanese traders crossed the line from hard bargaining to outright cheating, as well as threats of force, in order to maximize the return from their trade posts. As you might imagine, the Ainu did not take this very well, and the result was a massive uprising against the Japanese in 1457. Led by a powerful Ainu war leader named Koshimane, the Ainu forces began marching along the southern coast, burning Japanese settlements, and killing Japanese settlers or chasing them away. The revolt, however, was not long-lived. In 1458, a talented samurai named Takeda Nobuhiro, no relationship, by the way, to the Takeda of Kai province, managed to kill Koshimen while the latter was besieging a Japanese settlement, removing the leadership of the revolt and thus effectively ending it. Now, while it was unsuccessful, Koshimane's revolt did have two long-term consequences. First, it, in conjunction with the general collapse of political authority during the Sengoku period, forced Japanese expansion into Hokkaido to a halt. No daimyo had the resources to waste building up a position somewhere that desolate when there were far more pressing military matters close to home. Second, when the Sengoku period finally did come to an end, it convinced Toyotomi Hideyoshi of the utility of putting one clan in charge of dealing with and defending against the Ainu. Chosen for this duty were the Matsumai clan, who claimed descent from Takeda Nobuhiro, the slayer of Koshimane. They were given authority over the settlements in southern Hokkaido, and built a castle as the base of their authority along the coast. The Matsumaya family was given two directives, control the Ainu, maintain the trade. However, they did not always do a good job of keeping things smooth. Specifically, two revolts flared up during the Edo period. The first is called Shakshane's Revolt, and I'm guessing you can guess the name of the man who started it. The war started as a conflict between two Ainu bands, actually, over access to resources. However, one of these bands had subordinated itself to the Japanese for protection and called in the Japanese for backup. The interference in Ainu affairs touched off the formation of an anti-Japanese coalition led by none other than the war leader Shaqshen in 1669, which began coordinated attacks against the Japanese all over the island. Matsumai records describe Ainu warriors armed with a motley collection of weapons Everything from poison-tipped arrows to firearms that the Ainu had bought from the Japanese or taken from defeated Japanese soldiers. The war stemmed from ethnic tension between the samurai and the Ainu over, you guessed it, trade issues. Though the original grudge that started everything had been over Japanese interference in Ainu affairs, most of the people took up arms because they believed that the Japanese were cheating them. Shakshane was able to fight the Matsume to a standoff, and eventually the Matsumai agreed to negotiate. The two sides came together and hammered out a peace deal, but the Matsumai, demonstrating all that samurai honor we love talking about on this show, gave Shakshane poisoned sake to celebrate the peace, and then ambushed him and his poisoned supporters while they were done celebrating. Without Shakshane's leadership, the resistance collapsed. There would be one more violent flare-up against the Japanese in 1789, spurred by the at this point totally justified and not at all surprising fear that the Japanese had given another Ainu chief poison sake as a gift, but this rising was fairly minor. For all intents and purposes, Ainu attempts to drive the Japanese out of Hokkaido were done. The Japanese presence was still confined to the southern coast, but the impact of Japanese settlement was far-reaching. Much as had happened a century or so earlier in the Americas, the Japanese brought with them an unexpected extra, disease. Intensively agricultural societies like Japan, because of their high population densities and greater proximity to domestic animals, tend to have higher rates of endemic disease than hunter-gatherers do. Because of this, those populations also have greater levels of natural resistance to these diseases, since resistance becomes a trait that is then selected for The Ainu, by contrast, lacked that high level of resistance, and as a result, the closer proximity to and contact with the Japanese brought waves of smallpox epidemics that absolutely devastated the Ainu population. The diseases accomplished what Matsumai could not, fundamentally pacifying the Ainu. By 1807, Matsumai domain's own estimates put the number of remaining Ainu on Hokkaido at somewhere around 26,000. Those numbers continued to fall. A similar estimate from 1854 put the number at less than 18,000. Simply put, there were not enough Ainu to make a fight of things anymore. At the same time, Japanese interest in Hokkaido was piqued by a new development, the arrival of the Russian Empire. The Russians had been steadily expanding across Siberia since the 1580s. By the 1700s, Russian explorers had made it as far as Kamchatka, the peninsula to the north of Japan, at the tail end of the Kuriles, that thing that kind of dangles off Russia. There, they made contact with the northern branches of the Ainu, living in the Kuriles and on Sakhalin, as well as finding some shipwrecked Japanese fishermen. The Russians immediately sent envoys to the south, arriving in Matsumae and asking for all the usual things: we'd like to trade with you, we'd like docking rights at your ports, that kind of thing. The Russians were rebuffed, but their expansion into regions close to Japan could not be stopped as easily as their requests for trade. Russian settlers began arriving in the region, and there was a very real fear among Japanese leaders that the Ainu territories, sparsely populated as they were, would be essentially stolen out from under them. That would put a potentially hostile foreign power within the stone's throw of Japan proper. By this point, the Tokugawa government was too preoccupied with maintaining its tenuous hold on power to make a real issue of Russian expansion. It staked a formal claim to Hokkaido, but wasn't really in a position to enforce it. However, after the Meiji Restoration, the Meiji government was in a much better position to solidify the Japanese hold over Hokkaido. You see, to put it somewhat crudely, the best way to make sure the Japanese could hold on to Hokkaido was to fill it so full of Japanese people they could not be chased out by an invading army. The question was, who would want to move up to some godforsaken island in the frozen north, though? Well, it turns out that there was one group in particular that was more than willing. After the government officially abolished the samurai class in 1876, many samurai unsurprisingly discovered that the life of receiving guaranteed stipends, even if those stipends had been pretty meager, in exchange for learning how to kill people and read Confucian philosophy, had not really prepared them well for the job market. Most, though not all, fell into bankruptcy. The government offered to distribute lands to these bankrupt samurai, with the only catch being that these lands were up in Hokkaido. You had to move up there to get them. Oh, also there were technically still some people living there, but let's not get too hung up on that. The Meiji leadership certainly was not. As a result, by the 1890s the Ainu were a minority in their own native lands, accounting for less than 5% of the population. Official Japanese policy was to promote assimilation as much as possible, with the goal of culturally converting the Ainu into Japanese citizens. The Ainu language and Ainu religious practices were both banned, and the Ainu were forced to take Japanese names and learn Japanese. This is the same practice of forced cultural conversion that would be put into place in Okinawa, and the same thing would eventually be attempted in other imperial Japanese holdings like Taiwan and Korea. Interestingly, Ainu-Japanese intermarriage was actually promoted by the government as a way to absorb the Ainu into the Japanese mainstream. This stands in contrast to a lot of other overseas empires with strict legal boundaries between colonizer and colonized. All of this meant that when Japan's imperial ambitions came to a fiery end in 1945, no one seriously considered Hokkaido a colony. It was about as integrated into Japan as it's possible to be. That also meant that most of the Ainu stayed within the boundaries of Japan. Though since the Soviet Union annexed Sakhalin and the Kuril Islands, there is a small population of Russian Ainu in existence as well. Now. If you're expecting me to say that after 1945 the whole policy of forced integration stopped, I'm going to surprise you a little bit. That's only kind of true. To be sure, the government no longer wanted to, nor could it, outlaw the Ainu language or religion, but it also granted no real recognition to the Ainu. You see, one of the fun facts about post-occupation Japan is that any law not specifically negated by the occupation, like, for example, the Peace Preservation Law, remained on the books. One of these former statutes was an 1899 law that specifically stated the Ainu were former Aborigines. So what the hell does that mean? Well, it means they're no longer Aborigines. Now they're Japanese. This meant mandatory attendance at Japanese schools where they would learn Japanese, and no government aid or assistance keeping their language and customs alive. This law remained on the books until 1997, and it wasn't until 2008 that the Japanese Diet even passed a law recognizing that the Ainu are a distinct ethnic minority with their own history and their own culture. Nowadays, the Ainu do have more political clout than they've had at any point since the Meiji Restoration. The 2008 legal recognition gave them legal status they'd never had before and official protections for their language and culture that would have been unthinkable even a few decades earlier. As of 2012, the Ainu even have their own ethnic political party, the Ainu People's Party, or Ainu Minzokuto. The aim of the Ainu Minzokuto is to promote issues relating to minority rights in Japan. The leader of the party, Kayano Shiro, is the son of an Ainu rights campaigner named Kayano Shigeru. Shigeru became famous in 1997 when he and other Ainu leaders won a court case against the Hokkaido government after it tried to seize more Ainu lands to build a dam. On the other hand, while things are looking up, it may well be too late. While their numbers have bounced back a bit since the Edo period, there are still only around 25,000 Ainu left in Japan, and many of them have totally assimilated into the Japanese mainstream. The Ainu Minzokuto, meanwhile, has had a really hard time getting started, In 2013, they couldn't even get enough money raised to field any candidates. And that landmark court case from 1997? Sure, the Ainu won it, but it took so long that the lands had already been seized and the dam already built. Even the court ruling giving the Ainu the win acknowledged that nothing could really be done. What will happen to the Ainu, what their future is, is really anyone's guess, but personally I'm not too sanguine about their ability to protect what's left of their culture after so much has already been lost. But here, I would be more than happy to be proved wrong. That's all for this week. Special thanks to Ron Hyatt for donating to support the show. To join him to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for one of Japan's most famous tales, The Contest Between Takeda Shingen and Uesugi Kenshin.